This week's Old Testament reading is Psalm 50, verse 1 through 6. You can find it on page 565 of your Pew Bible. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him and around him. Tempest rages, he summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me this consecrated people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice and the heavens proclaim his righteousness for he is a God of justice. This is the word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is from Mark chapter 9, verse 2 through 9, found on page 1011 in your pew Bible. Uh, 1011. The Transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Sherman Street. I don't know, I've maybe said this before, but I don't love preaching on Transfiguration Sunday. Because, like, what is going on? And also, we have to talk about it every year, which is hard to say something new every year. Um, and anyway, we're in this strange scene today um, that you just heard. Jesus invites Peter, James, and John to go up a mountain with him. 
Um, I don't know why those three, like what makes them so special. Uh, but they hike up the mountain, and I don't know what they're expecting, but probably not what happened. Um, all of a sudden, Jesus' clothes become brilliant, gleaming, and Moses and Elijah appear and talk with Jesus. And then Peter starts mumbling some incoherent things about tents. And Peter, or, and a cloud appears, and a voice speaks from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And as quickly as it all began, it's over. Peter, James, and John must have been befuddled. And so are we, I think. Um, This text is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but none of them really explain what's happening. Um, But the fact that we get to talk about it from Mark makes me happy because uh, particularly of verse 3, Mark says, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. (laughs) Matthew says that his clothes became white as light. Luke says that it was as bright as a flash of lightning. And Mark turns to laundry. (laughs) Jesus was brighter than your whitest whites. Um, which, I mean, of course, he's talking about his clothes, so it does fit. It's just like this miraculous, amazing moment, if anything, is the opposite of laundry. Uh, This has got to be it. But um, actually, the more I thought about it this week, maybe not so much. Um, So this is the second time we have heard a voice from heaven in the Gospel of Mark. Anybody know what the first one was? Jesus' baptism, that's right. Um, At his baptism, the Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of a dove, and the Father said, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So the first time the voice is for Jesus. Um, Right after his baptism, Jesus will head into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. And in that place, the devil will call into question his identity his relation to the Father. He'll say, if you really are the Son of God, then do this. It is Jesus' confidence in his own identity that, mean, like, that allows him to turn away from that. Because it, and it, so at his baptism, Jesus was given this clear reminder, you are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. But also there are 40 days of fasting between the baptism and the temptation. When the devil comes to him, Jesus is hungry and he is alone. And he has to remember what he heard over a month before. The voice does not boom in the desert. The same kind of thing is happening in the Transfiguration. This moment marks the exact center of the book of Mark. From here, from this mountaintop, Jesus and the disciples will begin their journey towards Jerusalem, toward the cross. And Jesus has predicted his death actually right before this text. Um, Just before this, near the end of chapter 8, Peter calls Jesus the Messiah for the first time. But Peter is still thinking this mighty Messiah who will overthrow Rome, so Jesus tells his disciples for the first time that he will suffer and die. Peter is incredulous at this, right? And he says, this will never happen to you. And Jesus tells him, essentially, I mean, earns him the rebuke of, get behind me, Satan. 
Um, Jesus tells him essentially that Peter does not know what he's talking about, and he does not understand what God is doing. I wonder if actually that's part of the reason that Peter got invited up the mountain. Um, Peter can't make this connection between the Messiah and suffering, right? Maybe he needed the bright light and the voice from heaven to assure him that Messiah was indeed the right answer, even if it was going to look really different than he thought. Um, He's going to need a little extra help trusting Jesus in the days to come. I think... Sorry, there was something underneath here and it was rocking, so I just needed to fix that. Now we're stable. Okay, and we can continue. Uh, <laughs> none, of the, none of them understood exactly what was happening at the Transfiguration, which is, I think, why Jesus tells him, like, just don't tell anyone about this until after the resurrection. Um, there's a lot of our lives, I think, that don't make sense until we can look at them through the resurrection. Um, but I bet that it would stick with them, Right? I bet that they paid closer attention to Jesus when he spoke again, having heard from the Father, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Just after our text, just a little later in chapter 9, Jesus predicts his death for the second time. And this time Peter doesn't rebuke him. They don't understand, but no one says anything. And this is so often how our spiritual growth happens, right? We experience a thing that we can't make heads or tails of, or maybe it doesn't quite sink in all the way, and we have to live with it for a while before it starts to make sense. I bet when everything started to go horribly wrong in Jerusalem, and when Jesus didn't seem at all like the Messiah that they had expected, and when he was tortured, and when he was hung on the cross, and when he was laying in the the tomb, and they thought it was all over, I bet... Even then, they couldn't shake the image on the top of the mountain. Right? That, that memory of the voice still rumbling in their chests. What does it mean with the image of the cross and the transfiguration kind of bumping up against one another in their minds? Both of those moments um, with the voices, the baptism and the transfiguration, they seem like their preparation for what is to come. There are moments of clarity for when things will not feel clear. If Jesus despaired in the desert, he could remember the voice that he heard. And the disciples, through the trauma of Jesus' rejection and murder, they too could return to what they had seen and heard. At the very least, they couldn't, you know, just turn away from Jesus and say, oh, I guess he's not what we thought, right? They would still be stuck wrestling because of what they had seen on the mountain, even though it seems like the opposite of what they saw in Jerusalem. This brilliant moment became a touch point for them, for when things seem impossible, or for when God seems like God might have completely abandoned them. On that mountain, Peter, James, and John caught a glimpse of the kingdom of God. It's what the Celtic Christians call a thin place where the things of heaven and the things of earth brush right up against one another. As if through a window, they looked through this world and saw the kingdom of God as clear as day. Um, I wonder if you've ever had a moment like that. Maybe not a transfiguration. Uh, Maybe you have. 
<laughs> but a moment where God seems especially near. The reality of God seems especially clear. Um, maybe I've not told you about this, or I think, I'm sure I have told you about this, but when Tony and I were deciding to go, whether or not to go to New Hope, which is the last church that we served, um, we had like an especially clear sense of call. Uh, it's largely through a prayer group that I was a part of at the time. Um, they had committed to praying for us as we decided where to go. I had been offered like a cushy job in Ann Arbor, <laughs> and uh, we were also talking to this very, very poor church in West Michigan. Um, that did not seem cushy at all. Uh, even the interview process had like made us confront a bunch of our own prejudice. Um, one day I was chatting with Tony and a coworker of ours at Church of the Servant. We worked there um, for a short time then. Um, and I put to word something that I'd been thinking of but hadn't said yet. I said, like, I'm afraid to go to New Hope because I'm afraid that my dad will be disappointed with me. Like, he would be proud if I took the more prestigious job. And I got up from that conversation, and I went, like, right around the corner and turned on my computer to check my email, and I had an email from someone in my prayer group who said, Jen, I was just praying about your decision, and this verse came to mind, and I don't know what it means, but maybe you will. It's this. A man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. <laughs> and I was like... Okay, like it was so crazy to go from that conversation just like around the corner to have this verse like, this is not about your dad. Um, there were a few things like that that just felt like, oh, this is so strangely clear. Um, I once heard a missionary say that he thought that you sometimes got a clear call because the work ahead of you was going to be hard. Um, that was true at New Hope. I think we saw the kingdom of God there. Uh, but it was difficult, um, and it was really helpful in those difficult moments to be able to return to those moments of clarity and say, this is where we are supposed to be. Um, and I don't know why it so often works like that. Maybe, maybe it's easier to hear God when we aren't freaked out or stressed out, and so God gives us this gift when we can still receive it. Um, I don't know. It's what happened for Mary, too, Right? She got an angel messenger before she had even conceived. Uh, but when she was very pregnant and traveling to Bethlehem, and they couldn't find a room for the night, and she ended up giving birth to her first baby in a barn with some cattle, there was no angel then. Just her and her contractions and a memory. But the thing is that God was more present in that manger than God had ever been before. God was more present in that manger even than when the angel was standing before her and speaking directly to her. Just in a way that it would be much harder to recognize. I don't know why it works like that. Um, why not just be so clearly present all the time? I don't know. And it seems like the disciples couldn't even understand what they had seen, but I am sure that it stuck with them. Not long after this passage, in the next chapter, the disciples get into an argument about which one of them is the greatest. And I'd never thought about this before, but I wonder if it's because Peter, James, and John got to go up the mountain. 
Uh, and they were like, if you guys knew what we had seen. <laughs> um, and up until this week, I thought maybe they got to go up the mountain because they were the greatest disciples. But maybe not, right? Like, maybe they were the only ones who needed the transfiguration to be able to walk through Jerusalem. Maybe they needed it. They needed to hear the Father say, listen to him, for them to be able to listen well when Jesus predicted his death again and again. And then when it happened. So they got this gift. And the transfiguration wasn't the only time that the glory of God was revealed. Right? Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God. Everything he did and said revealed the glory of God to anyone who had eyes to see it. I think the transfiguration was about sharpening their vision, teaching them what they were really seeing whenever they were looking at Jesus. You know, it's not as if Jesus' glory was diminished when his clothing faded or as he walked down the mountain. His glory was just as present as he when he healed the demon-possessed boy in the valley and delivered him whole back to his father. His glory was right there when he ate with the tax collectors and the sinners and touched the lepers and gave sight to the blind. In the Gospel of John, John seems to say that Jesus' glory was at most on display when he was hanging on the cross in that bloody, awful mess. In all these things, in everything he did, they saw the glory of God in the person of Jesus. On the mountain, they got to see what it really was, right? They got to see it through the veil in this flash of lightning kind of way that they might see more clearly every other day. So that that gleaming picture of Jesus would seep into every other picture of Jesus and every moment of life. So much of our spiritual lives is like chasing after the right emotions, right? Like we want our skin to prickle and our heart to warm. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Those moments are lovely. But they're just not the goal. Just like it wasn't right for Peter to try and set up camp on the top of the mountain. They were given a gift so that they might have the capacity to endure what was coming. So that they might remember to listen to Jesus when he predicted his death, and they might remember his his words when their whole world imploded. Um, I have fluctuations in my prayer life, as I'm sure many of you do. There are times when I'm really consistent at sitting down to pray, and other times when I seem to forget about it altogether. Um... And I've noticed through the years uh, that when I return to prayer after some time away, I often feel all the feels that I want. Um, Like, I sense God's nearness and movement. I feel like God speaks, like, through my prayers or through something I might be reading. Um, But that sense always seems to fade as I get more consistent, Uh, which is really quite annoying. (laughs) You know, give it a week or a month, and my prayers start to feel more perfunctory again. And that's usually when I start to drift. Like, I don't know, maybe this is something that God is doing in me. Um, 
or maybe your experience is different, but I have this sense that it might be something like the transfiguration, right? Those moments of the, of the good feels are a gift given so that I might know what's true all the time, whether I feel it or not. The feelings are not the gift in themselves. They are the first steps on a pathway to a larger gift of being able to see God in all things. Because God is present in all things, in all moments. You know, we only exist because God holds us in being. Every breath you take is a gift. Each moment of our existence is a gift. You know, the transfiguration and my good feelings, they're just glimpses into what is always true. We live in a world where there is more going on than what we see on the surface. And our God works in the hidden places and in the crosses and the tombs of our lives just as much, maybe even more, than on the mountaintops. Moments of clarity give us an opportunity to learn to see every other moment clearly. Not just the big ones, but the little ones too. Like you've heard of, uh, probably heard of Brother Lawrence um, in his little book, Practicing the Presence of God. Um, Brother Lawrence made it his mission to return to God at all moments, just to continually think God, or keep God in mind. Um, he was a monk, and his job at the monastery was to wash dishes, which at first he hated. Um, but doing the dishes became a place of contemplation for him, a place of intimacy with God. He prays, Lord of all, Lord of all pots and pans and things, make me a saint by getting meals and washing up the plates. Kathleen Norris, in her book, Acedia and Me, she argues for learning to see God in the daily repetitive routines. She says, the ordinary activities I find most co compatible with contemplation are walking and baking bread and, Mark's favorite, doing laundry. Or take Elizabeth Bar Barrett Browning. Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God but only he who sees takes off his shoes. This morning, Sherman Street, my prayer is that we would remember our mountaintop moments and that they would speak to us of every other moment. That, they would, that we would learn to be the ones who see and who take off our shoes in the abandoned places and the desperate places and the mundane, everyday places. Let's pray together. Lord God, you give different gifts on different days. And today's gift might be a transfiguration of sorts, and tomorrow's might be doing the dishes or folding the laundry. Um, and Lord, I pray that we would see how similar they are. That we would see your holiness in all that you give us. That we would see your goodness and love in each moment. In Jesus' name, amen.